two, three, four. Ha! Nailed it. First try. Hockey has always been a game of change. There have been rule changes, team changes, roster changes, player changes, and line changes. When we look back at the earliest versions of organized league play in Canada, we likely would not recognize the sport. The offside pass rule existed. You're only allowed to pass backwards. The game was so different. And one of the ways it was different was that it was super violent. Lawrence Scanlon wrote that in the early to mid-1900s, Hockey was very much like war. The blood flowed freely. Let's take a step back even a little bit further in time. Lady Aberdeen was president of the International Council of Women and the National Council of Women in Canada. She watched hockey for the first time in January 1874. She was enamored and fascinated with the sport, noting its speed and how the players battled in an athletic discipline. Slowly though, her perception changed. As she saw more injuries, more things happen to the players. She said, the more I see of hockey, the less I like it. It presents too fierce a temptation for roughness and unfairness. The game was rough. It was aggressive. And players, much like they do today, they sometimes took liberties on the ice. By 1904, the Ontario Hockey Association President John Robertson stated that we must call to halt the slashing and slugging and insist upon clean hockey before we call a coroner to a rink. There's value to pausing to reflect on that statement. This really hasn't changed in hockey. We see rule changes that continue to address different concerns in hockey as they kind of appear. One for intentional contact, like slashing calls happening more frequently when the contact is made on the hands. There's also rules around violent conduct. Fights and knockouts from fights are becoming less frequent, but they're still part of the game. Even with unintentional contact, there's concern. We think back to last playoffs where John Taveras was removed from the ice after a scary collision with Stanley Cup final participation trophy, Corey Perry. It was in this world in the early 1900s that one of the scariest incidents in NHL history occurred. Alexandria Crescens traveled to Maxville for a game on February 24th, 1905. Alexandria had lost the previous OHA game 5-1 just under two weeks prior against Maxville. So the Crescents were looking to regain their footing against a team located only 25 minutes away. There were a few different levels to the rivalry between the Alexandria Crescents and the Maxville Hockey Club. Not only were they close geographically, but there was a divide religiously. Alexandria was a French Catholic community, which attracted citizens to their town from Quebec. Maxville, however, had strong Protestant roots. 80 fans from Alexandria joined the team on the train for the final game of their season. The roads had been rendered impassable by a recent storm, so there was really no other spectators that evening other than the Alexandria and the Maxville locals. Along for the ride on the train was referee Bernard O'Connor. O'Connor was being provided for the game by the Alexandria club in response to an injury suffered by Crescent player John McDonald. Alan Loney, a player on the Maxville squad, had taken out McDonald in the previous match, and the Alexandria players felt strongly that it was a result of poor officiating. Which, you know, that never happens in hockey. Not at all. Hi Tim Peel, how you doing buddy? This was O'Connor's first refereeing opportunity. Upon arrival at the rink, it was noticed that the ice was in poor condition, and that snow easily collected on the ice making lumps that would be testing the skating abilities of the players throughout the game. Timekeeper Donald McDonald, and that's a real name, Donald McDonald, was from Alexandria, and he was told by Maxwell local Angus McDonald, 
another McDonald, that there had been a tactical discussion among the Maxwell Hockey Club earlier in the day. The idea was, the Alexandria Crescents would be pretty easy to stop if you could only stop their best players. One of those players, John McDonald, was already out injured. The other two were Harold Dick and Alcide Lorraine. Now, Alcide Lorraine was born on November 20th, 1880 in St. Marthe, Quebec. The rover was 24 years old and he was one of the higher skilled players on the ice that night. This would be the last game Alcide Lorraine would ever play. It would actually be the last day of his life. By the end of this game, Alcide Lorraine would become the first person recorded to die during a game as a result of a violent incident. His death would send shockwaves across the league. It led to a murder charge. But it wasn't just simply a hockey moment. The events of this game tell us more about society at the time. It showed us how the sport was being played. It showed us how the public viewed violence in sports. It demonstrated the ideas of masculinity in early 1900s Ontario. It showed us what it meant to be a hockey player. What did it mean to be a tough hockey player? And what did it mean to be a man? Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and I'm as swift as a coursing river, all the force of a great typhoon, the strength of a raging fire, and mysterious as a dark side of the moon. This is Storytime Hockey. We're going to break this down into three different pieces and look at this event from three different angles. The first was what we know about the event itself. The second was the trial. And the third would be the world in which this happened. So first, let's look at the game. Keep in mind that the previous game was 10 days prior. There had been a significant injury to a Crescent squad member, as well as a local rivalry between the two teams that bubbled under all the matches between these two teams. This game was immediately rough. Bernard O'Connor, the referee, said that sticks were being flung around freely with players being struck and their attackers being sent off the ice. Later, at the trial, O'Connor testified that he had prior to the game approached both teams to warn them about their conduct, not that the players were putting much stock in what he said. Around the 25-minute mark of the game, Maxville was up 1-0 and carrying momentum. Alcide Lorrain picked up the puck in his own zone and began skating up the ice. He managed to avoid the advancing forecheck of two or three opponents before coming to face with Alan Lonnie. Lonnie was larger and advancing quickly. They met along the boards in the neutral zone in a violent collision. This was a normal part of the game. This game was an onside game. There was no forward pass at this time. Tactically, this led to a lot of focus being put on the individual puck carrier from the defensive team. This also led to a higher frequency of body checks and forcing players into the boards. Because of this, it was a more violent game and injuries happened quite frequently. The skirmish that followed has been described many different ways, covered at length in the witness testimony that we will talk about in a bit. In the end, Lonnie was hit in the face by Elsie Lorraine's fist, and Lonnie either deliberately or not brought his dick down from behind his head and over his shoulders onto Lorraine's skull. Lorraine collapsed and he didn't move, he was unresponsive. Elsie Lorraine's brother Leo also played on the Alexandria squad. He immediately made a line straight for Lonnie, struck him, and dropped the 19-year-old player to the ice. Lorraine was taken to a shed nearby the rink, where he was declared dead. The following day, there was an inquiry into his death. The post-mortem examination determined that the skull was crushed just above the left ear for over two inches, and the broken bone fragments were in five different pieces. Lorraine suffered a brain injury from this and died immediately. After evidence, the inquest jury announced that they were of the opinion that Alcide Lorrain came to his death by being hit by a hockey stick in the hands of Alan Lonnie, and moreover, from the evidence, we are of the opinion that the blow was given deliberately and not in self-defense. Alan Lonnie 
was charged with murder. Later on, the charge would be eventually reduced to manslaughter. So the trial for manslaughter was held in Cornwall, Ontario. Still a smaller town in Ontario outside of the nation's capital, but still significantly larger than Alexandria or Maxville. Spectators that witnessed the game were all from Maxville or neighboring Alexandria. The list of nearly 40 witnesses subpoenaed showed that most of the witnesses were being called from either Alexandria or Maxville. And wherever they hailed from was usually the side of the trial that they were going to present for. The traveling group pushed the limits of transportation and lodging in Cornwall, from the jury to the professionals to the witnesses. In front of Justice Tietzel, the presiding judge, Lonnie pled not guilty and that he was prepared to stand trial without any delay. He had been in holding for four weeks up to that point. Reporters noted that it was starting to show on his face and in his physical appearance. Lonnie was represented by Robert Abercrombie Pringle, Member of Parliament for Cornwall, Ontario. He was also the Treasurer of Cornwall and served in the House of Commons from 1900 to 1908. The Crown Prosecutor was K.C. French. Mr. French presented this case. He claimed that the whole of Canada was watching this with interest and that the game of hockey as well as the prisoner were at the bar being tried. While he was not personally adverse to athletic sports, he did note that they should be carried on in proper spirit, i.e. best not to have someone die. Also part of the conversation was the approach of amateurism versus professionalism. Why were sports played? Was it fun, entertainment, competitiveness, or was there an actual business to be made out of it? and did it reinforce the ideas of masculinity in Ontario. He didn't suggest that they review professionalism or amateurism, but he was definitely introducing this into the debate to try and sway the minds of the jurors. Hockey fans, it's finally time to hit the ice again, and thanks to DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. You're in for the season of a lifetime. New customers can bet $5 on any team and get $200 in free bets if they win. Now, it's game day, and the Flyers are playing the Tampa Bay Lightning. I am protest betting this year. Every single game that the Flyers play, I will bet $1 against them, and I'm actually having a ton of fun doing so. I've lost money because they started 2-0, but that's okay because it means my team is winning. If that's not enough excitement, you can turn small bets into bigger payouts with same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets, like which team will win, how many goals will be scored, and more for your shot at an even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN, bet $5 on any NHL team to win their game, and get $200 in free bets if they do. That's code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. Please see the show notes for details. The first witness was Walter H. Dick of the Alexandria Crescents. He played cover point defenseman and was one of the other highly skilled players that Maxville had looked to shut down. He testified that Loren carried the puck up the ice and was met by Lonnie, who cross-checked Loren's stick, breaking it in the process. Lonnie struck Loren in the head after this, and Loren fell. He testified that part of this as well, so rule number 13 of the Ontario Hockey Association forbids raising the stick above the shoulder. Dick was the first person to get to Loren, rubbing snow on his face, trying to revive him, and then Leo Loren, the brother, went after Lonnie and struck him in the face with his stick. Second witness was William Simpson, who described Loren and Looney as having been tied up in a physical battle for the puck. He had seen Loren reach down to pick up something, and then Loney raised his stick over his shoulder and brought it down on Loren's head. 
In Simpson's mind, it was the roughest hockey match he had ever seen, and feelings and emotions had been running high. In the testimonies that followed, it became clear that Lorraine had broken his stick during the altercation. He should, by the conduct of the time, have replaced the broken stick with a new one, but he remained in the play. Simpson was asked a handful of questions in the cross-examination trying to establish Lorraine's role in the altercation. Simpson denied hearing Lorraine say that he would put Lonnie out of business, or that he had been kicking at players with his skates throughout the game. Witness John McMillan traveled from Toronto to testify in the case. He had seen Lorraine make multiple rushes up the ice, and on the final rush saw Lonnie stop him. In the battle, Lorraine's stick was broken and the puck was taken away by one of Lonnie's teammates. Lorraine turned and put his face up towards Lonnie, but he wasn't sure if Lorraine had actually struck him. He saw Lonnie strike Alcide with his stick, and then brother Leo came over and struck Lonnie in the head as well, but he felt that Alcide should have left the altercation actually. His stick was broken, but until this point, Lonnie hadn't done anything wrong until the blow was struck. McMillan was the first person to testify that started to kind of give us an idea that maybe Lonnie was going to end up being not guilty. John Moffat, another witness, repeated some of the information found in the coroner's inquest, but he also noted that he hadn't seen the incident, but he had heard it. He testified that Lonnie was the first class character, that he may have struck at Laurent to prevent himself from being hurt in the altercation, introducing the concept of self-defense. The physician's post-mortem showed that the skull of the deceased was indented over the left ear, and a portion of the skull, some two to three inches in length, and one half of an inch wide, broken in five different pieces. Postmortem was clear that the blow had killed Lorraine. The depression in the skull may have been made by a stick, and it would have taken a strong blow to make the injury, such as swinging the stick. Lonnie's lawyer Pringle, in cross-examination, had Moffat confirm that the injury also could have been caused by very rough ice and elevated hard surfaces. Dr. K. McClellan testified that he agreed the fracture could have been caused by the stick, but did not think the fall could have caused the injury. However, allegedly he had agreed with that finding in the past, but now he, air quotes, could not recall. Goal judge from the Maxville net, Donald McPhee Jr., was within 15 feet of the altercation. He saw Alcide Laurent raise his fist. He saw that Lonnie turned his back to Laurent and then turned and took a swing. He saw Leo skate up to Lonnie and strike him with his hockey stick. Donald McDonald, the timekeeper, said Laurent was the best player that night. He noted that Laurent raising his fists to opposition players was actually an old habit of his when he was a captain of a lacrosse team in years prior. Then it was referee Bernard O'Connor's turn to testify. The altercation had occurred after a whistle had been blown to stop the play. The ref was eight feet away at the time when Lonnie struck Laurent. He sent Lonnie off for the rest of the game. The defense pressed hard on the character of Lonnie, first witness stating that he was one of the finest men in Maxville. Finally, Alan Lonnie took the stand. He discussed the mix-up and how the two players met along the boards. He did not know if he had been struck by a stick or a fist. He does know that whatever hit him dazed him. This was a hit that had fractured his nose. After being hit, he staggered backwards and struggled to stay on balance. He does not recall how his stick hit Lorraine, and he did not see Lorraine fall. At the end of the trial, the judge spoke to the jury, reminding them that the only excusable homicide was what was purely accidental or what was done to protect life or prevent bodily harm. After four hours, the jury returned and gave a not guilty verdict. Judge Tietzel was openly uneasy about the jury's findings, feeling that they had found a guilty man not guilty, and he brought up this subject to the grand jury of the Ottawa region. This was a body responsible for reviewing cases and laws and administering advice for future scenarios. 
They suggested a second referee on the ice at all times to support fair play and safety. In truth, it wasn't even the first death related to the sport that year. There had already been one in Pembroke, and another in Woodstock, New Brunswick. The jury noted that they strongly condemned the tendency to rough play in hockey, lacrosse, and football, which frequently resulted in painful and permanent injuries, and sometimes in death to the participants. They criticized the press for giving sporting news prominence, and they held the press partly morally responsible. The lionizing, as they placed it, of rough players had reached such a stage that unless there was a change, it might be necessary to, quote, have such sports prohibited by legislation and placed in the class with bullfights and cockmates. So let's talk about the press. The modern day world, it's not hard to find discourse in the press or about the press and its impact on the world. Whatever channel you find yourself turning to, you know there's a counter-opinion channel existing somewhere else. The growth of organized hockey leagues have begun in English, white, upper-middle-class professionals, and by the late 1890s, they had cemented itself as a national winter game in Canada. At the same time, the role of the newspaper was changing. There isn't really a modern-day equivalent to what the newspaper was in the late 1800s. Access to the newspaper crossed generational gaps, social classes, race, and ethnicities. It was the most powerful political tool of its time, and people who managed the information in newspapers, they wielded an uncanny amount of political influence and financial power. As much as it might be easy to compare them to social media, they were much more powerful in their smaller regional ways. As hockey became more widespread in Canada, journalism began to evolve. The newspapers began to focus on needing to be commercially successful, and one way to do that was by including sports. Editors and publishers looked to increase revenues. Not only did newspapers need to inform, but they now needed to excite as well. There was competition to be purchased. This began an era of sensationalistic writing in sports. Details of games would even change based on demographic or location. A losing town's newspaper would reserve their game summary to the back page in 100 words, while the winning team's local paper would write up 500 words discussing the high-flying sensational second period goal. The dramatic style of sports journalism emerged as a way of representing the excitement of the contest that most hockey fans were unable to witness firsthand. Not only did the daily journals discuss scores, stats, and player highlights, but they also discussed the violence of the sport at length. They created heroes and villains through their exploits in the sport. Stacey Lorenz from the University of Alberta wrote that the newspapers frequently made reference to violent incidents and rough tactics, creating a cultural narrative around brutal butchery and strenuous spectacle. There was an enjoyment in the violence, and it created rivalry and tension among different local fandoms. It created outrage and fascination with the masculine display on ice. The newspapers reaffirmed both middle and working class ideals of masculinity. Despite the significant change that it was going through, through this sensationalism, we begin to see the crossing of paths between hockey, masculinity, and journalism. Simply put, populations of young Canadians were moving to larger centers. Urbanization was an aspect of everyday life that all of North America was coming to grips with. Not only did population demographics change, but it also had an impact on what kind of person was developing within Canada. What it meant to be successful, what it meant to be a man. Those ideas no longer rested on the survival of Canada's harsh farm life. It was shifting to individual achievement and success in urban areas. The self-made man could happen through becoming a merchant, a bureaucrat, a businessman, or a professional. 
And while the white middle class developed, and along with it the new idea of masculinity, those working class males who moved to the city and did not change reaffirmed their ideals of masculinity. They were rugged, they could survive, they were tough, and it was often represented by drinking, fighting, and blood sports. This was a major shift away from the muscular Christianity, or athleticism, that had become a strong part of early Canada. The British ideals of stoicism, hardiness, and endurance clashed with these new ideas. Strength through struggle was no longer a shared Canadian experience. Social elites were concerned about cultural feminization and over-civilization of man. They focused on re-establishing their view of masculinity through sports. Rugged sports, such as hockey and lacrosse, made violence necessary and manufactured what they saw was manly character. These sports focused on physical prowess and traits core to the idea of manhood. While the middle class valued success individually, working class members valued masculine honor, toughness, and physical prowess. As classes developed within these new cities, these lines became faded. Middle class society idolized the working class ideals and praised them, and they were respected and celebrated even if it was criticized by moralists and social reformers. In hockey, the line between manly roughness and brutality was a fine and moving line. Depending on who watched, their social status, educational background, and local conditions, what you could get away with changed. It sometimes even changed on a game-by-game -game basis. And because of these different opinions on asserting your masculinity within sports, people fell into one of two camps. People who watched the sport, or played recreationally, were often from the middle class and focused on participation in different athletic pursuits more frequently, things like equestrian or cricket. The second group was the working class players who identified with more physically aggressive notion of masculinity, rather than reserved and civil expressions exemplified in other sports. Social reformers were concerned that the experience of these sports that praised muscular pugnacity had the potential to go too far even as far as noting their potential for physical and moral degeneracy. The thought was that if ideals of manhood could be represented in sport, and the middle urban class could find fandom and appreciation for these values, then the brutal, strenuous, and violent sports erased the need to be concerned for the erosion of manliness in the male population. That's a very historically academic description of what it was. The reality was, if the middle class could appreciate and become a fan, of the brutal and strenuous sports but not participate in them, they would be able to still preserve their own ideals of masculinity. At the same time, the working class participating in these physical altercations reaffirmed their own ideas. It would be easy to look at the game on February 24, 1905 between the Alexandria Crescents and the Maxville Hockey Club as simply just another game between two hockey teams in eastern Ontario from places no one has ever heard of. But the sport of hockey had been molded into a brutal and violent game. It praised working class ideals of strength and physical abilities. It continued the ideas of strength through struggle, that concept that had helped colonizers survive some of the harshest aspects of Canadian living. At the same time, public-facing ideas expressed in newspaper reporting helped establish an exhibition of what hockey should look like. It needed to be rough, that's what the newspaper said, and the newspaper was consumed by the larger population. It needed to be violent. It needed to include fights, stick swinging, and hard body checks. The sensationalist newspapers made the game sensational. They helped create an expectation among the greater population of what they could see if they attended a hockey game. For the players in the games though, seeing these descriptions of other matches 
gave them ideas of what they were supposed to be doing. This aligned perfectly with the push to redefine what masculinity among Canadians looked like. What did it mean to be a man? It was appreciated by the evolving middle class and aspired to by the working class. When all of these aspects of Canadian life were mixed together into two teams and they skated out to the poor ice in Maxville that night, what you would expect to happen happened. A rough game led to an altercation and the death of a 24-year-old star in the league. Lonnie was found not guilty, of course, but his stick did make contact with Laurent's head. He did kill somebody. Fast forward 115 years, where does that leave us now? Is our game violent beyond what we're comfortable with? Do we still have an idea of what it means to be a player in this game? Do we encourage players in hockey today to toughen up, be stronger, be faster, be better? Do we tell them to man up? And how do these ideas align with our expectations of masculinity and being a man? Violence in hockey has always been a defining part of the sport, but maybe sometimes it's also deafening. Was there an approach that we should have taken to avoid Todd Bertuzzi's Steve Moore incident? It has strong similarities to the Lonnie and Loran altercation. What about McSorley and Brashear? What about the more modern players like Tom Wilson, Radko Gudis, and Rafi Torres? Hockey has always had a role in the development of what it means to be a man, woman, or a Canadian. It's a sport so strongly ingrained into our national identity that it's one of the handful of symbolic descriptors other nations use to identify us. The world of 1905 seems so far removed from where we are today. Yet somehow the role of hockey in the development of young Canadians remains the same. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, the proud record holder of most times playing fantasy hockey and never coming in the top five. Thank you for listening. If you have a moment, please like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast, download our podcast, share it with friends. Every interaction we have with you goes a long way in spreading this podcast to other people. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok to keep up to date. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next episode.